I'm starting to get a little itchy here. This is a lot of Wilsonianism. This is a lot of multilateralism. This is a lot of faith in international institutions. It is the week of February 8th, and welcome to episode 65 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Michael Gottlieb, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Associate Counsel and Special Assistant to the President. Jody Herman, former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director and former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Before getting started today, I want to provide a quick programming note. You've not heard our good friend Dana Struhl on the podcast for some time as she was taking a break to serve on the transition team for President Biden. Now, she is reportedly being considered for the role of Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East. Well, we are happy for Dana, this means we have a slot to fill on our panel. In order to do that, we are excited to have Michael Gottlieb join us as a regular on the show. We are excited to share his perspective and analysis with you once a month. Now, on with the show. So President Biden spoke at the State Department last week and outlined his vision for American foreign policy. He talked about Russia, China, Burma, climate change, Yemen, and certain human rights issues. Notably, he did not outline his approach to Iran, but we might be able to discern some hints of where he is going by the initiatives he took in other areas. Jody, let's start with Russia. Uh, President Biden said he was going to hold Vladimir Putin to account for election interference and for imprisoning Alexei Navalny. At the same time, President Biden signed a five-year extension of the New START arms treaty, which is exactly what Vladimir Putin was hoping for. So how exactly is Joe Biden's Russia policy better for the United States than Donald Trump's? I'd say it's exactly better than Donald Trump's in that first we have a coherent and nuanced policy toward Russia that recognizes that Russia is an aggressive adversary, right? This is a country responsible for interference in our elections, for a massive cyber attack via solar winds on U.S. agencies and businesses, on U.S. troops in Afghanistan, right? In addition to an internal crackdown and dissent in political opponents like uh, Alexei uh, Navalny, like it's in all ways better than it was before. And just with regard to new start, I'd say that just because something is good for both countries doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. Like if new start is good for both of us, and that's and that's okay. Like without an extension or replacement, uh, there would be no legally binding constraints on the two world's two largest nuclear arsenals for the first time in in half a century. Right? Like you don't win a nuclear arms race. Right? The numbers are irrational uh, from their very premise. Right? You could destroy an adversary with fifteen hundred or with five thousand warheads. Like New START is just the best way and the only chance we have to limit Russia's nuclear arsenal and to ensure that we have a clear picture as to how many weapons they have and where they are. And I think there's a presumption, at least somewhat, that uh, we will be able to capture some of the new weapon systems that Russia is bringing online, right? It would be completely illogical for us to just walk away because there are some benefits to Russia too. Jody, let me push back a little bit. Uh, the the Trump administration at, at the end of its one term was making an effort to expand New START or come up with a new arrangement that would have included China. China's nuclear arsenal is growing faster than anybody's. It's a big concern. There was an opportunity there. Maybe it was handled in 
a ham-handed way by the last administration. But there's an opportunity there to do something that was more uh, in U.S. interests on arms control. Are we are we missing an opportunity here? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that New START is expiring like now, right? So like we have to actually just go ahead and do that. Like, would it be better if China joined the agreement? Sure, right? But like China's absence doesn't eviscerate the purpose of a treaty with Moscow. Like we still need to know how many warheads and missiles they have and and where they are. Like there really was never a serious China conversation, right? Like them, the Trump administration putting China out there is like, we're only going to do this if China joins was just never a real thing because we weren't actually having this conversation with China. Like it's, that would be nice, but it's just not real. Jamil, let's turn to China more generally. President Biden in the speech basically said that his approach to China is to win the competition by bolstering the American economy with his so-called American Rescue Plan, which is, uh, you know, some government spending and other things things that would uh, reinvigorate the American middle class and, and get our economy going again. That's his fundamental way of responding to the challenge from China. What's your assessment of that strategy? Well, look, uh, Les, I think that um, President Biden did the right thing by referring to China as our most serious competitor, right? And he talked about confronting their economic abuses, countering their, the, their aggressive actions, uh, pushing back on their human rights. IP and global governance issues. Um, but he also did extend the olive branch, right? Said, look, we're going to be willing to, we're willing to work with Beijing when it's America's interest to do so, right? Um, and, and that's, that in some ways, that's almost inevitable, right? I think it's, there's no question that we have to recognize that we have to work with China. At the same time, he was not specific about any of these things. He didn't talk about their jailing over, of over a million Muslims in the Xinjiang province, right? The Uyghurs, right? He didn't talk about the, their, their attacks on democracy in Hong Kong. He didn't talk about their threatening behavior towards Taiwan, right? He didn't talk about their massive ongoing theft of intellectual property uh, from the United States. Uh, he didn't talk about their oppression of religious and ethnic minorities across their country that it even goes well beyond the Uyghurs. And so, you know, I laud what he said on Russia and how he called out Navalny specifically uh, and the like. He should have done even more on China and been even more aggressive. The fact that Russia took up three, four paragraphs of the speech and China took up a couple, right, is concerning, right? I think that the Biden administration is the right instinct on China. But at the end of the day, it will be the defining issue of the next decade between the United States and more time and more effort needs to be spent on it. Frankly, right, we should be leading a global movement today, bringing together the democracies of the world, bringing together the Muslim countries and calling out what's happening to the Uyghurs and being very explicit about it and being very aggressive about it. And, and I'm shocked to see a Democratic administration that stands up and I know believes in human rights and the like, not leveraging that for what it's worth right now in the first 30 days of this administration. They should be doing a lot more. Jamil, why aren't Muslim countries more upset about what's going on in Xinjiang province? You know, I uh, I think in a lot of ways, uh, this goes to a couple of uh, challenges that these, that these Muslim countries face. One, they have their own problems at home they need to worry about, right? And so uh, it's it's hard to point at uh, point the finger at an authoritarian uh, nation that's oppressing even religious minorities when uh, they may be engaged in similar behavior at home with respect to their religious minorities, whether those religious minorities are Christians, Jews, or Muslims that they don't agree with, right? Um, and so that's one challenge I think they have, domestic issue. The second issue is, I think... Um, you know, they also have economic interests. And at the end of the day, right, as has happened a lot for a long time in the United States, and frankly, for the majority of time we've been dealing with the, the China 
threat and the China problem, our economic interests trump and uh, not Donald Trump, right? But 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 supersede our worries about human rights and our worries about their global uh, growing presence and the like. And I worry uh, the Biden administration saying we will work with China when we have to, uh, but do it for a position of strength, uh, may be viewed as code for we're going to give up all the leverage we got in the Trump administration. I worry they're going to do that on Iran, and I worry they're going to do that on China, too, and they'd be uh, well-positioned to not do that uh, and would be smart to not do that. Um, I think their instincts are right. I worry that they will be drawn off of those instincts uh, by doing what is expedient. Michael, let's talk about something that might draw away their attention. The the Biden administration, John Kerry, uh, as, as a very senior advisor to the president, has called climate change an existential threat to the United States. Uh, dealing with climate issues is going to infuse all of our all aspects of foreign policy. It appears to be a comprehensive whole of government approach. How practically will the administration uh, do that at the same time it's trying to take a tough approach to China and its aggressive moves in the world, whether it's Xinjiang, Hong Kong, South China Sea, Taiwan, uh, the border with India, what have you? How do you balance this existential threat of climate change with a, hard, a real hard-nosed policy towards China? Yeah, so you know, you start from the premise that you know the reality. Uh, with respect to U.S. leadership on climate issues is that we have very little credibility on the issue right now. We have sort of veered from policy extreme over the past couple of administrations. And the notion that we're going to be back in the international leadership seat overnight uh, is probably a little bit naive. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some work on the Hill uh, and to have some some type of bipartisan consensus for uh, binding commitments in the United States to put us in a position to really exert the kind of leverage that we're able to exert uh, in other issues, uh, other foreign policy issues. But I mean, China did, in the absence of U.S. leadership, largely due to prodding from the European Union, make commitments towards a carbon a principle of carbon neutrality by 2060. That's 10 years later than the international community wanted. It's non-binding. There are lots of problems with it. But the EU made some progress on this in the absence of U.S. leadership. And so now really the question is, now that you've got a special, a special envoy level representative in the U.S. government who is committed to uh, climate issues across the whole of government, how is that going to mesh with the other pro foreign policy priorities we have with respect to China? And I know there was a lot of worry uh, over the last couple of months that essentially Secretary Kerry was going to take over and you know trade human rights issues for concessions on climate. He made that pretty clear uh, two weeks ago uh, that, that that was not the administration's policy. He said that climate would essentially serve as a a standalone issue, I think, was the phrase that, that Secretary Kerry used, um, and that they wouldn't be used to trade off against other human rights issues. Uh, China's foreign ministry sort of uh, issued a pretty funny statement in response to that, objecting to it and saying that, you know, climate can't be isolated, unlike other issues, unlike flowers that can bloom in a greenhouse despite winter chill, uh, was the language they used. And so, you know, the real question now comes, well, what happens when the rubber meets the road here and China refuses to cooperate on uh, its commitments and it starts, um, you know, dumping out uh, coal-fired power plants through the Belt and Road Initiative or something like that? And I think the reality is that the U.S. has carrots and sticks and that the administration is going to use a carrot and stick approach uh, to try to deal with this. It's not, it's, it's not going to be a, a direct trade-off between climate objectives and human rights objectives. There are lots of tools, less I know you've uh, you've done some writing about some of those tools that, that do exist for uh, the administration, the International Development Finance Corporation and other international tools that exist to allow us to provide alternatives to some of these uh, uh, coal, coal fired 
power plants and other fossil fuel based infrastructure programs that China is pushing out around the world. So a big piece of it is going to be that. And another piece of it is just going to be understanding that, you know, China can't refuse to engage with us on critical economic issues like trade. And so we do have other leverage points uh, besides making concessions on really non-negotiable items like the repression of, of religious minorities and other human rights issues that are fundamental to our policies. Michael, let me, let me push back on you a little bit on this notion of Chinese-European cooperation on climate change issues. I mean, you said it yourself, these are, these are non-binding commitments. Even at that, they're late, even per the, the very loosey-goosey language of the Paris Climate Agreement. In the real world, China's carbon footprint is expanding. Ours is shrinking. So in a, like in a way, let me push back even a little bit more and say, not sure we've really forfeited leadership on climate change issues when our climate footprint's going down, China's is going up. Isn't that the real nut of the issue here? How do we get beyond uh, Xi Jinping just saying exactly what the Europeans want to hear, making us look uncomfortable or feel uncomfortable and get to a place where we're actually addressing U.S. interests? Yeah, I, w- I wasn't trying to suggest that China has credibility as a leader on climate. I was simply suggesting that we'd rather have them in a position where they'd made those commitments rather than telling the entire international community generally to take a hike. It is some amount of progress, even if it is inadequate. So it's it's a better place to be. I do think that using diplomacy and the international economic system and our ability to make things happen with uh, financing projects and, and competing with China for influence in a lot of those Belt and Road Initiative countries and markets to try to provide alternatives uh, for those countries. Now, that's going to cost money. It's going to take time. It's going to require investment. But um, combining that with some amount of pressure on some of the recipient nations that are partnering with those projects, I think can take us to a place where at least we mitigate the effects beyond China's border. And then we've got to use consensus with the Europeans and other parts of the international community to try to actually put some teeth into the commitments that uh, that China has made, those non-binding commitments. All right, Jamil, my Republican brother, I'm starting to get a little itchy here. This is a lot of Wilsonianism. This is a lot of multilateralism. This is a lot of faith in, in international institutions that, you know, may in some cases be warranted, maybe not in others. Give me a little red meat here. What do we really think of Biden's approach the way he outlined it last week? Is this Is this rolling in soft or is this rolling in hard? Well, look, I mean, I think it's, Rolling in medium, right? Um, and and the reason I say that is because um, you know there is an easy tendency to look at the Biden team and say, look, it's all a bunch of Obama administration softies, right? He's back to talking about the sort of hug everybody, love everybody, rejoin the rejoin the international alliances, and you know, sort of it it, it sounds a lot like the lead from behind agenda. But I'll be candid with you, I don't think Joe Biden or the key team members he's put in place are lead from behind people. I have faith that they are actually lead from the front people, just a more diplomatic version of that, right? Look, they're not Republicans, right? Let's be candid. And they're definitely not, you know, Donald Trump bilateralism. There is no Trump philosophy, right? But whatever the thing that played out during the last four years, the chaos, um, whatever element you can draw out of that, they're not that either, right? Um, So I'm hopeful that people like Anthony Blinken, Right, Jake Sullivan, right, and Newbarger on the cyber uh, team at uh, at as the deputy national security advisor, right, um, and Joe Biden himself are willing to stand up and defend uh, this country. And if they're going to set red lines, actually enforce them, right? Uh, they're not going to just try and hug everybody. Well, the one thing I worry, I don't worry about is I don't worry that Joe Biden is going to have one of the challenges that Barack Obama had, which was the paralysis of analysis, right, the hand wringing, right. 
Uh, I think Joe Biden is more decisive. Um, and I think he's been around this thing long enough to know that indecisiveness uh, can lead to bad results. He saw it happen uh, when he was in the Senate. He saw it happen very plainly in the in the Obama administration. And I'm hopeful that he'll have learned the lesson from that. I think I think his leaders have learned the lesson for that. And so even though they're saying all the things that make them sound like, you know, you're, you're sort of, you know, uh, Obama 3.0, I believe this is going to be a more forward-leaning um, uh, presidency. And look, the president is always a creature of the world he or she lives in. Uh, uh, George W. Bush was never expected to be a wartime president, stepped up and led it. Um, I hope that Joe Biden will recognize uh, the very real threat that China poses to our our global leadership um, and will confront it head on uh, in the next four years. All right, Jody, Michael, I'm going to push back to you guys now. And I want you guys to explain for our faithful listeners why uh, Joe Biden's so-called American Rescue Plan is substantially different from Donald Trump's Make America Great Plan. They're both premised on strengthening our economy and somehow using that to make us more relevant in the world and advance our interests globally. They seem, at least at first blush, very similar to me. How are they different? I'll just take a quick stab at this. Uh, I, I think it just makes a huge difference to not be acting alone, right? Like in order to lead you, you know, you can't just act out there all by yourself. Like you need to have people who are standing by you to do that. Like we saw what happened under the last administration where Trump basically decided to go it alone in all aspects of U.S. policy and foreign policy. And it didn't work very well. Like you can call people out and say they're doing bad things, but if you can't bring anybody along to increase that pressure, like Russia is a great example of that. So is China, right? Like how do you push back against Russia if you're not bringing anybody along with you, right? Like you can you can take actions, but it doesn't mean much and it doesn't have much effect. Like we need to play the entire field. We need to play it internationally within the international uh, system, the UN. We need to play global economically and diplomatically. Like we need to be on the front lines with our partners and our allies engaged in Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia. We need to act collectively. Like no country wants to be owned by China or cede their national assets, their ports and their mineral rights if there is an alternative. The question is whether or not the United States in concert with our allies is going to offer a real alternative to countries to the Chinese model. And I think that is what Biden is going for. Michael? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to, to add to that outside of the fact that, I mean, the, the Trump policy essentially was if there's any type of an agreement that the Obama administration executed, it's bad. And if there's any foreign country or foreign leader that praises Donald Trump, they're good. And everything else can kind of like fall out of the headlines and we'll leave it to the little people to manage. You know, you can you can say that the plans kind of sound the same when they're put onto a bumper sticker. But in reality, I mean, you can't really reasonably compare a foreign policy that is designed to maximize our position in an international multilateral system and strongly oppose uh, dictators and strongmen who are opposed to basic and fundamental democratic free society values uh, and the, the po foreign policy that the Trump administration was pursuing for most of its four years in office. So I, I don't disagree with what you guys are saying. I would make the point, though, that Within a few days of Joe Biden taking office, the European Union signed a deal with China. It was it was a, it was a very stark reminder of the challenge of actually acting multilaterally. It's sometimes it's just not in European nations and others' interest to cooperate only with us. They're going to cooperate with China in some cases because it's in their interest to do so. And that's even more true in the developing world. So. 
Uh, all right. Last question on this topic goes to Grant. Perfect. So I want to get a little bit into the weeds with you guys. The president, along with his big speech, wrote a memo that outlined sort of his makeup of the National Security Council. Many of you have worked with the National Security Council and sort of have seen it through its various iterations. And as Washington vets, you know that personnel is policy. And sometimes boxology is important. So what do you guys think about this new setup for the NSC and what does it mean for policy? Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I think it's uh, I think it's potentially bad news for Tony Blinken. Uh, the State Department's been kind of the, the wounded animal in the cabinet for a long time, uh, strengthening the NSC, adding staff there, adding capability, having Susan Rice be part of the National Security Council, having John Kerry be part of the National Security Council is only going to steal the thunder from the State Department. And there's really, at the end of the day, only so much to go around. Tony Blinken's a very competent guy. State Department has a slew of incredibly competent, uh, hardworking folks who are in dangerous spots doing good things for their country. And they're, and they're going to remain marginalized under this scenario. That's my fear. I hope they're, they're able to work around that. But I think the risk is you have a State Department that's just not as effective as it could be by having this, this kind of massive glut of personalities, talent, and authority in the National Security Council. I mean, uh, I'll just say my, my take on that is that the number of people working at the NSC is more of a return to where it was in the Obama administration rather than some dramatic expansion. What you what you had in the Trump administration was a dramatic reduction, an intentional dramatic reduction in the size of the national security uh, NSC staff. And, you know, you can make arguments about whether all of the different people that are working in the EEOB and the different directorates are really necessary there. Are they really serving an important coordination role is it you know i mean there's a there's a debate to be had about that but it's not really clear to me that the uh, the restoration of essentially the staffing levels that you saw during the obama administration represents a shift away from the state department it's certainly not a shift away from the role that the state department had in the trump administration which was essentially non-existent uh, you, you know like d- depending upon who was who was in and who was out in trump standing on any given day so I, look i i just think it might be um you know it it might mean something for tony blinken and his status in the cabinet i i sort of doubt it i think that um, th- this is an, an nsc structure that is traditional you're going to have people respecting a process that has existed within that structure and that building for a long time. And, you know, thankfully uh, we didn't see uh, in this uh, organizational memo, anything like we saw at the start of the Trump administration when they tried to put Steve Bannon in all of the NSC meetings. So that's at least a step in the right direction as far as I'm concerned. Well, I, you know, I'm going to agree with Mike on the, on the sort of overall NSC footprint. I think it's fine for the president to have a, uh, a strong footprint at the NSC. And frankly, I think, I think, I think policy being driven out of the white house when it comes to some of these issues is, is a helpful thing. And, and frankly, I, I trust Jake Sullivan, not that I don't trust Tony Blinken, but I really trust Jake Sullivan uh, to do the right thing. And frankly, to be a forward-leaning voice on some of these issues. What I worry more about is this cast of characters that make up this, uh, the, the table, the NSC table. I mean, I mean, Samantha Power, Susan Rice, Tony Blinken, John, John Kerry. I mean, like, who, who, I mean, look, whatever you think about John Kerry, and I have to think he's a very res- well-respected, you know, longtime leader, but like that man has a lot of opinions and is not afraid of, of expressing them. The idea that he's going to limit himself to climate when he's at that table is a joke. The idea he's going to limit himself to talk about climate when he runs around the world, talking about whatever to all of his old buddies from back in the day is a joke. It's going to be a train wreck. And you add on to that, Samantha Power, you add on to that, all these other people. Look, Tony Blinken's an inside baseball 
you know, sort of, you know, bureaucratic brawler. He can keep up with the rest of them. He's very, he's politically savvy. He's going to be fine, right? The State Department will be fine. But I do worry that that you may get stasis, not because Joe Biden can't make decisions or Jake Sullivan can't tee up good decisions for him, but because you have so many opinionated, frankly, attitude voices in the room with, with decades of experience of foreign policy, you know, uh, try to speak with authority that you might get nothing done just because there's too many big personalities and egos in the room. So I think a lot of that's going to be how Jake manages that and what Joe Biden does in terms of making decisions and moving out and not getting stuck in the Obama administration problem of hand-wringing. Well, listen, how this rolls out, like leadership matters at the end of the day. Having lots of smart people and voices in that room is not inherently a bad thing, right? Like you have decades worth of, you know, policy experience and political experience uh, in the White House and speckled across uh, the interagency. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I hear you. Like that there's some risk that people have strong voices and they try to you know, use that voice to overshadow other people. But the management and leadership of this will matter at the end of the day. Like there is a way to bring that all together to make smart decisions. And it'll be really interesting to see. You know, I know people worry about the State Department being sidelined, right? The larger the NSC gets, theoretically, the less impact the state has. But that also depends on who's brought into the Security Council, like whether or not you're getting good detailees. But right? Security Council isn't only political appointees, right? You have people from across the interagency sitting uh, at the NSC that share their department voices within the interagency. And I think this team recognizes that and, and will use those resources in the interagency to help make decisions and to bring some authority back to the to the departments where, you know, where these policies are developed. I agree with Jody on that on that on that point in the sense that it's a lot better than the Trump administration alternative, right? Which was bring in some really well-regarded people and then push them out because because they don't agree with the president, right? And then bring in a bunch of junior people who literally do know nothing about what they're doing and do amateur hour jobs and then promote them throughout the administration, push them to senior, more and more senior positions uh, across the government. I mean, what happened at DOD and almost happened at CIA is amateurish and horrendous. Um, and so I, I'm all for at least some of the, the, the level of experience people bring. I just worry about the sort of, these people don't all agree on a lot of things. Um, and uh, they have very different views, and we saw the challenges that brought. Again, the team arrivals approach, it worked for Lincoln. It, it did not work for Obama. Uh, now, again, that may be uh, just where he was in, 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 his, in his development as a leader. Uh, hopefully Joe Biden has learned the lesson from that, but I agree with you, Jody. I'd rather have more experienced people than some of the train wreckers that we saw towards the end of the Trump administration. I just want to make one point because this is this is the second time that Jamil has brought up the, the specter of a of a roving John Kerry just like bombarding his way through West Exec. I'd like to think we've brought it up more than twice. Well, I, I've maybe only been present for two of them. So, uh, but you know, for those of us who have worked in serving the NSC in its very meeting, there's a, dis- a huge distinction between a member and people who are invited to various meetings. And, and John Kerry has not been elevated to the status of a member of the National Security Council. He is on a long list of people who the, the actual memorandum organizing this says will be invited as appropriate. That includes the labor secretary, the chairman of the Council of Economic Envir- Advisors and others. So Yes, he will be in some meetings, but it's it's you know he's going to be in meetings in the same way that other uh, people who are the heads of various components of the executive branch are invited to participate as necessary. Now, look, climate is a huge priority of this administration of President Biden. It's going to be a big issue, uh, so he'll probably be invited to some meetings that would make Jamil uncomfortable and nervous. I, th- I expect, 
Um, but it's not going to be like he's sitting in the back of the room in every single meeting they're ever, you know, they're having a covert action meeting. I'm not, I'm not pretty sure that the climate envoy is not going to be invited to that one. I'm just going to make the point, uh, contra J- Jamil and I think Jody, that the alternative to what Biden is doing is not what Trump did. I think we can just go ahead and stipulate that it's going to be better managed than the last administration, no matter what. That was that was such a uniquely dysfunctional scenario on many levels that that's not really the alternative. It was mismanaged on purpose to make a point, and uh, that's not a good idea, in my humble opinion. The alternative for, for what Biden is doing is instead of having granted high-level competent functionaries advising you, is for him to be consulting with the Senate and for him to be consulting with other American political leaders. If he really wants to build credibility with middle-class Americans, talk to the representatives they elected rather than a bunch of staffers you used to have who may be terrific and smart and we like all of them and we know them. Better to be talking to the Article One branch of government, consult with people who are subject to the voters, and let's and let's get a foreign policy that actually is bipartisan and represents a broader, a broader spectrum of America. I think that's the real alternative. Can't help but throw a pitch in for Congress to play a broad role in foreign policy of course who could disagree that our elected representative should play an important role but let's also be real the executive branch does and should hold the whip hand when it comes to national security and foreign policy less no matter how many times you say it on this podcast no matter how many times you write articles about it congress cannot and will not lead on foreign policy i don't necessarily agree with you jamil i get that there's a you know that the, they're in a primary position to roll out policy. But the truth is policies aren't sustainable unless you've also brought the Congress along with you. Like it's great to go ahead and roll something out. But if you're not bringing Congress along with you, you have a long term problem in that your policy is not durable. Agreed. And and we're back to the Iran nuclear deal. <laughs> I will say on your point about engaging others outside of that community, I mean, there is an entire section of the of the memorandum uh, on revitalizing the national security community or whatever it's called. Section five is on the policy on engagement and partnerships. And there is an entire study that Jake Sullivan has been tasked with doing, looking at how the executive branch can better integrate those partnerships with actual subject matter experts. So, you know, to be seen how effective that is, but they are focusing on it. Jake Sullivan's great, probably the best staff guy we all know. I would like it if Joe Biden talked to Joe Manchin about what he thinks of the foreign policy and how that's going to play in West Virginia. I think that'd be even more useful. Uh, All right, let's go to our second topic, democracy. In Russia, Alexei Navalny is in jail. He's told his supporters, stop demonstrating. Let's focus on the election that's coming up later in the year. In Burma, we've had a coup. Aung San Suu Kyi's under house arrest, at least for the time being. Uh, So kind of situation back to the way it was 10 years ago. Jody, President Biden condemned both of these things. He's advocating for Navalny to be released. He's advocating for the Burmese military to give up power. In the real world, what impact can the U.S. have on these situations? Well, let's just put something out there first, Les, which is we don't make country do things. Like we can't make Russia or Putin do something. We can't make the Burmese do things. But what we can do is is hold them accountable and ask other countries to do the same. And we can call out their actions. And having an administration and office that does those things and does them consistently is important. Biden has made this focus on democracy a central platform of his foreign policy. And I think that's because he recognizes two things. 
One, which is to be a global leader, you have to be a moral leader, right? The U.S. support for democracy is an investment in peace. It's an act of solidarity with citizens around the world who are struggling for their rights and freedoms. And it concurrently underwrites global security and stability when you have more democracy. And secondly, it's that democracy is a foundation for peace, as well as for health and education and development outcomes. All of the things that we hope to see in other countries and in ways that we support them through our through our foreign policy uh, spending, you know, whether that's AID or, or, you know, economic investments, like all of those things require the platform of democracy to be sustainable, right? Authoritarian and non-democratic states are, are more prone to civil unrest, to refugee flows, uh, and other risks to international peace and security, right? So, like, everything that we want, everything that the liberal international system was built on and for was to achieve peace and security. And it, there's a core understanding that in order to achieve those outcomes, you have to have a stable foundation of democracy, you know, built around uh, the rule of law, governance, transparency, uh, free and fair elections. Like, those things are all incumbent upon what comes next. Michael, what can the U.S. do to help Alexei Navalny right now? It's tough, right? I mean, so Putin remains popular, notwithstanding this uprising. Um, and a lot of Navalny's success uh, appears to be through his ability to uh, really successfully communicate in the modern media environment, as you should social media, that the Putin's palace film uh, that he's behind has been viewed more than 100 million times at the end of last month. Um, and that video really captures, I think, a lot of what uh, is animating some of the um, the movement that you see. Uh, you know, there's a, this video about this massive palace with a, a casino and an ice rink and something called an aqua disco. I don't even know what an aqua disco is. It sounds awesome, though. Um, so, you know, how can we help that? Jamil is building one, I think. <laughs> I think yeah. he's had one for a while. Um, so the Treasury Department obviously has a huge role to play here. The, the Treasury Department um, can help in terms of you know tracing assets and exposing corruption and providing the information necessary to allow these kinds of exposes about corruption to exist. Um, and and then there is uh, uh, of course you know the the role that sanctions will play in this. And it remains to be seen how much more juice there is to squeeze out of out of that fruit. Um, but Navalny's allies in Russia are calling for tighter sanctions on Putin's inner circle. Uh, there's clearly more that can be done there. Those kinds of sanctions on Putin's people um, does hurt. You know, when you make the oligarchs think about you know, not being invited to Davos anymore and losing their townhomes in, in London, um, that tends to matter and to produce some results. So, so that can have some amount of an effect. It's limited, uh, but it can help a little bit in, in terms of um, uh, in, in terms of what um, uh, can be done. Uh, but for that to be effective, you know, again, returning to the multilateralism theme, um, Europe's, Europe has to be involved. Europe has to be behind some of those sanctions regimes. So you're back to the diplomacy, uh, uh, you're back to the diplomacy lane. And then you've really got to tie um, what we're going to do on those sanctions to some type of a broader foreign policy outcome so that they know how to change uh, their behavior and they know how to get out of those sanctions. And so we, right now we don't have that, but, you know, important to move towards that type of a framework if we want those to have an effect. Jamil, uh, let's let's shift over to Burma, uh, where the where the coup happened a few days ago. What what are U.S. interests there? Do we really care that this has happened? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, look, we led the effort uh, to push back on the state law and order restoration council, uh, the junta that uh, that. Uh, that ran Burma uh, before Aung San Suu Kyi was uh, was released from her house arrest and and, and came back into power 
uh, as counselor of state or whatever title she has, uh, since she's not able to hold the actual office of of, of leader of, of Burma officially. Um, but um, you know, we were part of that. I mean, it was you know the state, the certain states in the U.S. and the federal government imposed uh, the kind of pressure on Burma that really that really caused them to uh, to ultimately. Uh, uh, return to her power, uh, the democratically elected government, and we should stand up for these things. I mean, it is important for America to call out uh, when these things happen, when coups happen, even when uh, those coups are um, in our, may appear to be in our interest. If you recall, um, we had a similar challenge uh, when in Egypt, Morsi was removed from power uh, by a, a military, uh, a military group that we that we you know CC uh, who we supported, um, and there was a huge hand wringing in the Obama administration about whether we would call it a coup or not call it a coup, and what implications that would have for our, for our defense policy. And and the answer to that is not don't call it a coup and call it what it is. It's fix our silly legal requirements that don't allow us to. Uh, waive certain things uh, and and continue to provide defense articles if in fact we think that a that something happened that was in our national interest, right? Um, so I, I think that we have these uh, legal requirements uh, created by people who who have a purist attachment to certain certain things, and that's okay. Um, um, but but you know we shouldn't leave ourselves exceptions to those rules. Um, and when a coup happens like this, and it is not in our national interest, we should call that out. Um, and why is Burma in our national interest? It is in a critical part of the world, right there, sandwiched between uh, China and. India, right? Southeast Asia is critically important to our national security in the area that it's in. Um, and Burma is a critically uh, important country in that region. So, you know, the idea that we should just pretend like, you know, it's 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 uh, another day that went by and we, we shouldn't really do a lot about it. I think, I think Biden was right in his speech to call it a coup. It just took too long for that to happen. Jody. Yeah. So this was a coup, but putting aside kind of the politics of, of coups in Washington language and what that means in foreign policy, like what Biden does here really matters, not just because we stand on principles and we protect the sanctity of of the elections, but because what Biden does with regard to Burma resonates beyond Burma, right? It resonates with other strong men in the Philippines, in Thailand, you know, in other places around the globe, but particularly in that region, it matters what Biden says and what he does and what and what comes next and whether or not we take a serious look at whether or not we want to reimpose sanctions on Burma. It matters. It matters beyond Burma. Um, it matters to our own credibility. All right. Let's uh, flex to those issues each of us are following that may not be in the news headlines. And Grant, you please go first. Great. Thanks, Les. Um, today, I'm following the flight of Hong Kongers from China. The UK has provided a path to citizenship for thousands of Hong Kongers who are fleeing the city after the imposition of the national security law, which functionally crushes the one country, two system scheme that was part of the handover agreement in the 90s. It's great that the United Kingdom is stepping up and Secretary of State Tony Blinken has said that he endorses the refugee status in the United States for Hong Kongers. But we need to do more. America can take in almost every Hong Konger and would only grow our population by 1%. America has the capacity to bring in more refugees and has an interest in sticking it to China and has a moral obligation to stand up for human rights. So let's follow the United Kingdom's lead and not just extend refugee status to Hong Kongers, but provide them a pathway to become citizens. Michael. So in the... uh... In the run-up to impeachment in the United States, I uh, am following and found interesting that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu actually appeared in court in his long-standing and ongoing corruption trial this morning. Appeared uh, was in the court for about 20 minutes before standing up, saying thank you very much, and leaving 
with his motorcade, uh, passing by signs outside of protesters, including one that called him the crime minister. Uh, so the, the, this trial is um, long delayed and very interesting for those of us following uh, the efforts to hold accountable leaders for corruption all over the world. It has been long delayed uh, in large part because of COVID uh, and, and for other reasons as well. Um, but as this uh, trial goes on, it will be very, very interesting to see how the Israeli legal system is able to accommodate the competing interests of, uh, of its executive uh, and its anti-corruption objective, objectives being pursued through its courts. Jody. I just want to clarify uh, with Grant here that this path to citizenship for Hong Kongers will clearly follow the guaranteed path to citizenship for DREAMers. Is that right, Grant? Okay. All right. So that actually kind of coalesces nicely with what I was going to talk about is that the U.S. has announced that it's going to rejoin the U.N. Human Rights Council. Although because we've been kind of out of the picture for a while, we're rejoining uh, with observer status, right? So like we're going to rejoin, but we're just going to have to like kind of sit and watch and listen for the time being until there are elections uh, later this year, in which case we can regain a full seat on the council. Uh, as Jamil is like shaking his head and losing his mind over here, I will appropriately note that the council is a very imperfect forum for addressing human rights concerns. It does admittedly include countries like Cuba, Russia, China, Venezuela, Eritrea, but this is about our broader foreign policy agenda. This is about reclaiming our place in the international system and not ceding that space to the Chinas and Russias and Venezuelas and, and so on, right? Like, it is important as part of our policy for us to take our position and take a stand in each and every one of these international forums. So, we're going to go ahead and do this with the Human Rights Council. Biden already rejoined uh, the World Health Organization. And I guess I wouldn't be surprised if we see an announcement about rejoining uh, UNESCO in the coming months, right? Like you're either in or you're out and the United States needs to be in. Jamil. I'm actually following what I think is a really interesting story about Pope Francis uh, going to Iraq. It is the first ever uh, papal trip to Iraq. Um, he'll be meeting with, uh, in early March, uh, with uh, Ali al-Sistani, the top Shia Muslim cleric uh, in Iraq. Uh, this follows on uh, Pope Francis's relationship with uh, Sheikh Ahmed al-Tayeb, uh, the Grand Imam of al-Azhar, uh, the seat of Sunni, uh, Sunni Islam, uh, in Cairo, uh, Egypt. And so, you know, what you see here is a real effort uh, by Pope Francis to improve Christian relations with Muslims. Um, and, and I think it's a really interesting move. We've all seen the very different role that Francis has played relative to his predecessor um, in a lot of ways steering a, uh, a more moderate course uh, than we've seen from the papacy, a more inclusive course. Um, going back to his history as a parish priest in South America, um, you know, it is really, uh, I think, a moment that will be uh, that will sort of stand in history as we look forward uh, to better relationships between all three of the major monotheistic faiths. Um, and Pope Francis is really doing his part. Um, and so we'll see. We'll see how this goes. I do think this is a critical moment uh, to bring together these three great faiths. Of all the things we might say about the Trump administration, the one thing that uh, that we may we may look at as a, as a, as a positive light is the sort of outing, the public outing of longstanding relations between some of the Muslim countries in the Middle East and Israel, um, and the and the and the sort of normalization of, of those in the Abraham Accords. Um, and so, watching uh, Pope Francis reach across the uh, religious aisle to these Muslim leaders, um, I think is a, is a great moment for uh, the. Christian uh, Muslim relationship that goes back uh, uh, generations and reaffirms that that common 
uh, a theology that all three major monotheistic faiths uh, share. Abraham and the Abrahamic religions are getting a lot of good press lately. Pretty good for a guy who, you know, was willing to kill his own son. So the issue I'm following is a terrific statement issued by Gloria Steele, who's the acting administrator at USAID, the same time President Biden was at the State Department reinvigorating diplomacy and the American role in the world. Uh, Acting administrator Steele issued a, a terrific short statement. Part of it is the following. As our assistance proclaims from the American people, USAID programming promotes American interests and advances America's role as a leader on the global stage. Our foreign assistance helps build a safer and more prosperous world, which in turn leads to a safer, more prosperous America. So for me, it's terrific to hear her directly link foreign assistance to U.S. national interests and our leadership in the world that needs to be done. It wasn't done terrifically for the last four years because of issues at the very top. It's nice to see that restored. Gloria Steele is going to be a terrific kind of interim leader until presumably uh, Ambassador Power shows up to be the administrator. So I think that was a great statement by Gloria Steele. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason at SEC. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 